Well, good morning, church family. I'm glad to see you here today. <clears throat> Struggling a little bit with, with sickness today, but uh, I feel kind of cruddy, and I sound kind of cruddy, but I hope the message won't be too cruddy, all right? Tried to get somebody else to come preach, and they were not available, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and preach today. Uh, <clears throat> we started a new series last week called Revive Us Again. I don't know if you agree with this, but I really believe it. And I think the little sermon buffer there showed us with Dr. Billy Graham speaking, we are, at, we are in desperate times in America. We really are. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about our nation and our nation in relation to God. Our nation and our churches and folks like you and me, folks like us, are desperately in need of revival. And one of the problems is we don't even recognize it. We, we don't even notice it. We've become so complacent and so content. We don't even recognize how deep, how dead we are in our sin. So last week we looked at the Psalm 85, 6. It says, revive us again. That word revive, as I told you last week, means to be brought back to life. There are Christians who need to be brought back to life. Families who need to be brought back to life. Serving the Lord again. Churches that need to be brought back to life. Revival is when God does something in us and for us that we could not do for ourselves and brings us back into a relationship with Him. Revive. Us. I told you last week, those are, those, that word us indicates that there are times when God's people need a fresh encounter with God. There are times like now when we desperately need God to restore us. And then that word, again. None of us stay in a love relationship with God completely. None of us stay in a love relationship with God continually. We can lose our desire for godliness. We can lose the intimate fellowship that we once had with God. We will not lose our salvation, but we can lose the joy of our salvation. So we have to cry out, God revive us. Again, and that was last week's message. Today, we're going to focus on what God does in response to extraordinary prayer. What God does in response to extraordinary prayer. Uh, one of my favorite stories about extraordinary prayer involves a man named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a famous preacher many years ago. He preached in inner city Chicago. And then from there, he began to preach all across the nation in places like New England and and, and then he preached across the ocean in places like Europe. And God was just using him in amazing ways. But early in his ministry, in the beginning part of his ministry, Moody went to England one day to preach. And as he went into this church, first time he had been there, he preached. And Moody later wrote in his journal that it was one of those times when you preach and it seems like almost nobody is listening. Now, those kind of times happen to preachers sometimes. They never happen here, but in other churches they do. No, sometimes you, you wonder, is this microphone on? Are, are you awake? Are you listening? There are those times when it's like, man, it just didn't work today. And Moody had one of those times, which kind of impressed me and encouraged me to know that Neil Moody had those days too. But he had one of those days when nothing just seemed to work. No one seemed to be listening or caring anything about what he had to say. And so he left after the service that morning thinking, you know, I've got to come back and do this again tonight. And he really was kind of dreading it. 
And he went back <clears throat> that night intending just to preach and get out of town. That was his best strategy. He just go in and preach and get out of town. So when he came back that night ready to, to preach and get out of town, there was something different in the room that night. There was a difference in the atmosphere. People were sitting on the edge of their seats. They were listening intently. He shared the gospel and he preached Christ. And at the end he said, now, if you want to receive Christ and place your faith in him, I want you to stand up right where you are. And he said, people stood up all over the auditorium. (coughs) Moody was shocked. Sunday morning, nobody's listening. Sunday night, people are standing up all over the auditorium. So he told everybody to sit back down. He said, apparently you didn't understand what I had to say. And so he presented the gospel again. And he preached the gospel again and explained it to everybody. He said, now, if you'd like to receive Christ into your life and right now place your faith in Christ, I want you to stand right now. And more people stood that time than stood the previous time. Moody, Moody didn't know what to do. He was so shocked. And so he told everybody to sit back down. He said, apparently you're just not getting it. So one more time he preached the gospel to him. He said, now, here's how we're going to handle it. If you want to receive Christ, then I want you, after this service is over, to meet me and a pastor in this back room. And he got to the back room after the service. It was was packed, standing room only. They were packed in that room. Moody was frustrated because he didn't know what was going on. And so he said, all right, this is the last time I'm going to say it. I'm going to preach the gospel. This is the last time I'm going to say it. If you really want to receive Christ, I want you to come back here tomorrow night. This was on Sunday night when he said this. I want you to come back tomorrow night if you're really sincere about receiving Christ. He said, I'm not even going to be here. I'll be gone by then. But if you really are sincere, I want you to come back tomorrow night. So he left the church that night. He got on a train the next morning. He headed out and going somewhere else to preach. And a couple of days later, he got a telegram from, from his pastor back at that church. He said, Moody, you've got to get back here. He said, more people showed up on Monday night than did on Sunday night. And so he went back and he preached. And hundreds and hundreds of people who through those couple of weeks gave their life to Christ. Hundreds and hundreds of people. Moody's still not sure what in the world happened. What made the difference? He was an inquisitive kind of guy. And began to ask around, do a little research. And he found out that there was one bedridden woman in that town who had not been able to, church, to go to church that day because of her illness. When her sister came to bring her lunch, she asked her sister, how was church today? She said, well, it was okay. We had a guest preacher named D.L. Moody or something like that, but it wasn't really exciting. And when that bedridden woman heard that, her eyes lit up, and she said, D.L. Moody said, I've read a story about him in the magazine, and I've been praying that he'd come to our church to preach. She said, lay aside that food that you brought. I'm going to spend the rest of the afternoon fasting and praying that God would do a mighty work in that church through him. You see, ladies and gentlemen, here's what I want you to understand. Whenever there is a demonstration of the extraordinary power of God, it is usually because there are some people engaged in extraordinary prayer. There's a great story of what can happen when the church really prays. And it's found in Acts chapter 12. Would you open God's word with me today to Acts chapter 12? It's another story of what happens when people really pray. (coughs) 
Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Verses 1 through 4 kind of set the stage for the entire text. It says in verse 1, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. I've underlined that in my Bible. Intending to persecute them. You see, from the earliest days of the church, the church has been a persecuted church. From the earliest days, it's been a persecuted church. Intending to persecute them. Verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, one of the first apostles. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. James was beheaded. Herod had him beheaded. Now this was James, one of the one of the first apostles. James and John and Simon Peter and all of that group that was together. James was beheaded. Verse 3 and 4. When he saw that this dis I'm sorry, <clears throat> when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now get the, under, get the picture here. James has already been arrested and beheaded. And when Herod saw that that thrilled some people, he thought, well, this, this is a great time to, do some, to make some political capital here. And so he had Peter arrested as well, and he intended to try him after the Passover. He intended to try him and then probably behead him as well. So James, one of the early apostles, Peter, also one of the popular and early apostles, James already beheaded. Peter was about to be beheaded. And then the pivot verse is in verse 5. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, awaiting his execution, is essentially what was happening there. So Peter was kept in prison, but, that word is underlined in my Bible, I hope it might be in yours, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter was in prison. Peter was awaiting execution. Peter had 24 hours or less before he would meet the same fate as James. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you give us an understanding of the power of extraordinary prayer. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Two things I want you to see today based on that one verse in verse 5, and then we'll read some of the other texts. The first thing I want you to get is this. Extraordinary prayer focuses on the power of God rather than our power. Extraordinary prayer focuses on the power of God rather than our power. I want to ask some very basic but crucial questions looking at verse 5. These are very simple questions, but they'll help us get an understanding, a better understanding of what we're reading in verse 5. So the three questions I want to ask is this. Who did they pray to? Why did they pray? And how did they pray? All of that is answered for us in verse 5. First, who did they pray to? It says, but the church was earnestly praying to who? To God, of course. That, that sounds pretty basic, I'm sure. It's, but, but you need to understand it's central to the story. And it's a huge part of the story. You see, people all around the world are praying today. Hindus are praying. Muslims are praying. But who are we praying to? 
What sets the God of the Bible in the book of Acts apart from everything else? Here's the difference. The one we, we pray to, and somebody please get ready to say amen. The one we pray to, we pray to the God who is sovereign over everything and everyone in the world. That's who they were praying to. Herod, the most powerful guy in that area, had Peter locked up. He had already proved his brutality by beheading James. Peter was the next one in line. Here was the powerless church who had no ability to affect the outcome in any way, form, or fashion. They had no leverage with Herod. But the one thing they did have was this. They had a desire to pray and a belief in prayer. They believed that they were praying to God. The God who was sovereign over everyone and everything. And though they seemed powerless, listen, they, though they were no match for Herod and his army, they understood there's a greater power than Herod. So who were they praying to? They were praying to God, the one who was sovereign over everything and everyone. Question number two is this. Why did they pray? Why did they pray? Well, they prayed because they were utterly dependent on God's power. I want you to notice how desperate and impossible things seemed in verse 4. How many squads of soldiers are watching Peter in verse 4? Four squads of four soldiers. Somebody figure that up for me. How How many soldiers is that? 16. Sixteen soldiers are guarding Peter on this rotating basis. In verse 6, Peter not only is being guarded by these, he's sleeping between two soldiers. He's bound with chains on both wrists. And sentries are standing guard at the entrance. So if the church wanted to do something... There was no way they were going to get to Peter. There was no way they were going to get Peter out of there. There was no way that they could affect the outcome. And with their back against the wall, they prayed to God for the miraculous and the extraordinary. The only power they had was prayer. But listen, church, that's the only power they needed. There's a word for us when, in this text. When we don't see the miraculous and the supernatural happen, it's not God's fault. It might just be that we haven't asked for it. You see, I believe we get as much of this as we expect. And when we pray for nothing more than the ordinary, when we pray for nothing more than the usual, when we pray expecting little, if anything, to happen, guess what? That's exactly what you get. So here's this powerless church praying to an almighty God, sovereign God over everyone and everything. And as they're praying, they're praying for Peter because they were utterly dependent on God and his power. David Platt, I was reading something by him this week, and he was warning that Christians and churches in America, listen to this, he was warning that Christians and churches in America often don't need prayer. And when he first said that, I thought, what what does he mean by that? The churches in America don't need prayer. And this is what he said, and I quote, he said, you don't need prayer when you're watching TV. You don't need prayer when you're mindlessly surfing the Internet. You don't need prayer when there's no risk involved in your Christian life. You don't need prayer when you're not sacrificing everything. 
You don't need prayer when you're going through the monotonous motion of religious activity week in and week out. You don't need prayer for that. You can do that on your own. And you can live the kind of Christian life where prayer is never necessary. When I read that, it just gripped me. You can live the kind of Christian life where prayer is never necessary. And he's right. But if we as a faith family, if we as a church family are engaged in God's work, and if we are engaged in the battle for souls and the, the battle for families, if, if we're engaged in taking the gospel to the nations, then we're going to need prayer. <coughs> we're going to need it because we're going to be doing something bigger than us. So, <coughs> who did they pray to? Why did they pray? The third question I want to look at in verse 5 is this. How did they pray? Oh, this is good. If you haven't tuned in yet, hope you will. How did they pray? It says the church was, what kind of praying? Earnestly praying. It's the same word used to describe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The exact same word. Now, that's interesting. The exact same word that describes how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane was used to describe how the church was praying for Peter. They prayed earnestly. The, the New King James says constant prayer was offered to God. The King James Version says prayer was made without ceasing on behalf of Peter. I looked up the Greek word there for the word constant or the word earnestly, and it's a medical term used to describe the stretching of a muscle to its limits. Stressing a muscle to its limits. You see, here's what was happening. <clears throat> the faith of these Christians was being stretched. Why was it being stretched? Because they had prayed for James and he was beheaded. And now Peter is next in line and he's probably less than 24 hours from the same fate as James. James has already been beheaded and Peter was next. And they continued to pray for Peter's deliverance and their faith was stretched. There's a word here for us if you wonder if prayer really does any good. After James was executed in verse 2, the temptation would be to, to say, well, why pray? It didn't help any with James. Why pray? It didn't make any difference. God didn't spare James. He probably won't spare Peter either. That would be the temptation, but that's not what the church did. They prayed earnestly for Peter. Some of you have had problems this week or this month or this year, and you're wondering, why pray? It didn't do any good last time. Nothing changed. In fact, it may have gotten worse. But don't give in to that temptation to stop. There might be more at stake than you realize. You see, in the midst of the plots and the execution of James and the arrest of Peter, Luke injects the very important word, but, in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but... But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Something stronger than Herod's army was at work. It was a people of God praying to Almighty God. Things may not look very positive in your situation. Things may be stretching the faith of your faith muscles. It may be stretching your faith muscles as you're praying. But don't you stop praying. Don't you give up. You can Continue to pray earnestly, constantly, fervently, asking God 
to do what you can't do. And here's the reason you need to keep praying. This is number two point if you're taking notes. God can intervene in extraordinary ways in the lives of those we pray for. God can intervene in extraordinary ways in the lives of those we pray for. There's, this is my favorite part of the story. There are three things I want you to notice about the way that God intervened in this situation. First of all, God can intervene suddenly. Look at verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and chains fell off Peter's wrist. As the church prayed, and I don't know how long they prayed, but I imagine they prayed for a good while. I imagine it was hours at least, if not more than that. But as they prayed and they continued to pray and they prayed and continued to pray, suddenly an angel appeared in the cell of Peter. Somebody said prayer invites angels into the war zone of your experience. In the midst of the ordinary, suddenly there was the extraordinary. Everything was ordinary. Everything was ordinary. And everything was ordinary for a long time. But suddenly there was the appearance of the extraordinary, of the angel. And it's the same word in Luke 2.13 where shepherds are listening to the bleeding of sheep and everything is ordinary. And suddenly, the Bible says, a multitude of angels appeared. It's the same word in Acts 2.2 where the disciples are praying in the upper room and everything is ordinary. And suddenly, the Bible says, a sound of rushing wind and tongues of fire swept through the room as Pentecost came. You need to understand, we may pray for something for days or weeks or months, and suddenly, God can intervene. Not only does God intervene suddenly, God intervenes effectively. In verse 7, he says, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and, and woke him up. I love that. Peter's just taking a nap. He's just snoozing. And the Lord woke him up. The angel woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And when he got up, look what happened. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Iron chains fell off. Now you might say, well, Pastor, do you, do you really believe that that happened? I want to tell you something. Maybe, maybe I can answer it for you this way. God made the iron. And God made the fire in the forge. And God put breath in the blacksmith who made the chains. Surely, he can make chains fall off. If you have a problem with that, you need to remember that our whole faith rests on a greater miracle than that. Here's the lesson. When God intervenes, mark it down, ladies and gentlemen. When God does intervene, he will be effective in what he does. God never says, oops. God never says, I wish I could have done that one a little better. God never says, well, maybe I can do it better next time. When Almighty Sovereign God chooses to step into the ordinary and do the extraordinary, He will be effective. God intervenes thirdly. Make sure you hear this. God intervenes sparingly. Verse 10. Acts chapter 12, verse 10. They passed the, the first and the second guards, and 
came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they'd walked through the length of one street, suddenly, there's that word again, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. The angel of God got Peter out of jail. The angel of God walked through the gate with him, walked down the first street with him, and then suddenly left him. You see, there is a limit to the miraculous. The angel led him out and down the street, and then the angel took him as far as he needed to go, and then the angel left him. I'm frankly bothered by the Miracle of Minute Club you often see on television. Well, if you send enough money, and if you have enough faith, and if you'll send it to me today, then anything, you just name it and claim it, and God's going to give it to you. Can I tell you something? Hold on to your money. Because, here's, what I'm, here's, here's the reason I'm telling you that. If he's telling you you can name it and claim it, it is not of God. You don't have the authority or the ability to name it and claim it. Seems God has always expected us to walk by faith in him. And when we walk by faith in him, he often expects us to do our part. Manna fell from heaven but they had to pick it up. It, wasn't, it didn't just land in their dish. They had to go pick it up. Jesus multiplied the loaves and the, fish, loaves and the fishes, but the, the disciples had to distribute it, and then they had to pick up the leftovers. God does intervene, but most of the time, God intervenes sparingly. Oh, I suppose if God wanted to, he could send your uncle to church next Sunday. And you're praying and praying for them to come. I suppose if God wanted to, he could send them. But most of the time, he's going to ask you to be an answer to that prayer and invite them. We often have a role to play in the outcome of the answer. Now, I love the next part of this verse, or, or the next verse, and then with this I'll close. In chapter 12, verse 16. Let me fast forward the story. <coughs> Peter went to the house of Mary. That's where the church was or was gathering. <clears throat> the mother of John Mark. And he knocked on the door. Now the church is in this is so this is so funny. A church is inside Mary's house praying for Peter and for his deliverance. And as they're praying, there's this constant knock on the door. Rhoda finally gets up. Rhoda is a servant girl, and she goes over there, and she opens the door. And when she sees who it is, she gets so excited, she forgets to open the door and turns around and runs back to the people who are praying. And she tells them, it's, it's, it's Peter. It's Peter. And they, they tell her, you're out of your mind. It's, Shh, we're, we're praying. We're praying. God, we pray for Peter. Lord, help Peter. And she's saying, no, no, he's out there. He's at the door. And, and he's out there. And, and they finally say, if there's anything out there, Rhoda, it's got to be an angel. Now, just be quiet. We're having a hard time praying for Peter. God, once again, we pray for Peter. And there's this, 
Finally, somebody goes to the door besides Rhoda, and they see that it is indeed Peter. And this is the part I love. Apparently, they all were called to the door. Verse 16, Peter kept on knocking, and when they, when they not just a person, but they, when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. When's the last time God astonished you? When's the last time you were praying for something? And when the answer came, you were astonished. You're praying for your wife, you're praying for your husband, and God did the extraordinary, and you were astonished. You're praying for that need in your family, and God did the extraordinary after a period of intense prayer, and you were astonished. Here's my challenge to us, ladies and gentlemen. If we ever expect to see the extraordinary power of prayer, we will have to pray some extraordinary prayers. So here's my challenge. Let's do more than read this scripture. Let's repeat it. The Bible says the church was earnestly praying to God. What if we did more than just read that, but we repeated it? The Bible says again, the church was earnestly praying to God. I'm going to ask you to do something that Ronnie Floyd has asked us as pastors to challenge you with. Ronnie Floyd is the president of Southern Baptist Convention. He's leading our convention and asking churches to pray for revival. And here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I'd like to ask you to pause for the next month for the entire, for the rest of this month, at least for the rest of this month. Pause at either sunset on Saturday. Pause at either sunset on Saturday or sunrise on Sunday morning. And pray for three minutes for the anointing of God to be on me as I preach and on our worship service. Very simple prayer. The church was earnestly praying to God, the scripture says. What if? Every weekend before we come to this place, on Sunday night at sunset, when you see the sunset, spend three minutes, 180 seconds, asking God to do a 180-degree turn in our church. What if you spent 180 seconds, three minutes, and said, Lord, Lord, would you just have a, a special anointing on our pastor tomorrow? And God, I pray for a special anointing on our worship service tomorrow. On Saturday night at sunset or Sunday morning at sunrise, at least for this month, Let's not just read this scripture. Let's repeat it. The church was earnestly praying to God. The power is not in us, is it? The power is in Him. I want to invite you to come to this altar now and make that perhaps your habit for a while. And just earnestly praying to God. I, I don't know what the needs are in your family. I don't, I don't know what the needs are in your life. Or maybe you're just earnestly praying to God for revival. Or earnestly praying to God for your pastor. Earnestly praying to God for our church and for our leadership. Earnestly praying to God for our deacons. Why don't you come today and earnestly pray to God as a church? Extraordinary power. Is found when we when we pray extraordinary 
prayers. Let me pray with you. Thank you, God, for your love and your mercy and your blessings. Thank you, God, for your word. And now as we offer this invitation, may we as a church family, may we pray earnestly to you. The sovereign God who is sovereign over everyone and everything. May you ignite within us this desire, this willingness to trust in you and in your power more than in what we can do. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.